If you will, go ahead, grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians. We're going to kick it off in Galatians 3 somewhere. Uh, but first of all, just a quick announcement. We've been doing live streams since COVID. Um, a lot of that was obviously when we couldn't make it to DCF, couldn't make it in the physical building. Uh, we made sure that we had it available on Sunday mornings for everybody. That is a Herculean effort, mostly by Jeremy back there. Wave, Jeremy. Some, we, keep it, we keep him in the back room back there because he's dangerous. Um, but it's been incredible what he's done, and, and his wife as well, Jen. Uh, they just lead that whole booth back there in production and everything that they do. So a lot of that has been behind the scenes, but uh, a lot of people don't realize how much that takes. So we've been trying to recruit and bring people into that process back there. So if you would like to get involved in that in any way, helping get the message of our, our, our ministry out to, uh, to others, uh, they would love for you to help them do that. But uh, part of what we have to do is we're, we have to make some choices about how we want to use these guys. And we've been having a lot of conversations with our leadership team about critical events and how we, how we make the most of the resources that God's given us as a church. And uh, unfortunately, having a live stream on Sunday morning is taking so much more effort from away, away from some of the other things that Jeremy needs to do. He's, he and his wife are deacons. And so we're going to stop doing live stream on Sunday mornings starting, uh, Jeremy, is it next week? That next week is the last week, so if you're watching online, uh, it's not that we're not going to have it, we're just not going to have it at the same time we have it on Sunday morning. So if you want to be with us on Sunday morning, you're going to have to be in-house uh, to do that. Um, and I think it's Tuesday morning, we'll have the, uh, we'll have the uh, YouTube video, it's YouTube's online on our, our website, it's the best place to find it in case YouTube, I ever say something that YouTube doesn't like and they just shut us down. <laughs> so we put everything on our website, uh, first and for- foremost at dothancf.com, and so you can find it there. Um, Facebook, there's a bunch of different places you can find us and, and get to that. But just want to let you know, next week will be the last week that we do live streaming. So uh, for all you guys here sitting, looking at me right now, you're like, what does that matter to me? I'm here every Sunday. So thank you guys for being here with us. Um, so I'm just, I'm just going to jump right in. We've been doing a series started last week called Heirs with Christ. And um, I'm just going to give you a quick quick recap of last week because we're, we're building on something with, air, with this uh, series that is really, really important as we go into the next season as, as, a, as a church. And so last week, we covered some definitions. Um, I had several more about inheritance and what that looks like. It's going to give you one this morning as a recap, and that's simply what inheritance means, the acquisition of a possession, condition, or trait from past generations. So you get something that you didn't earn right? So you can see where I'm going with this whole series. But you get it from someone else in your past. It was handed down for you. We talked about birthright and all these different ways to see this happen. But just keep in mind, it's the acquisition. You get something that you don't deserve. You didn't deserve it. You got it because you were born into a family. And so that's what inheritance is about. We talked about two key elements last, last week. The first one was this. And it's a little bit different than what we talked about in, in many, many uh, circles in inheritance. And we talked about the fact that we are an inheritance in Christ. And so not just that we have one, that's the other one. I'm going to get to that in just a second and just talk about that for a second before I jump into the rest of this message. But remember that we are, who you are in Jesus is God's inheritance in the earth, right? And, and on into heaven. Ephesians 1.18 said, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We've always interpreted that as, what are the riches of my glorious inheritance in him? That's also true. <laughs> we talk a lot about that in church world, but unfortunately, we don't talk often about the fact that you and I are his inheritance. God wanted you 
That's why he sent his son to pay that awful price on the cross to get all the things that were in the way for us being in relationship with the Father, to take those away, to take all the sin out of the way so that you and I could come boldly before him, come and be in relationship with him. So that's really, really important. Believers are those that God has claimed out of all the people of the earth as his possession, his heritage, his inheritance, his heirs. You are an inheritance, not just have one, but you are. And then, of course, we talked about a little, little about the fact that we have an inheritance in Christ, and the key word was, it's in Christ. You don't get it because you go to church, you don't get it because you're moral, and we're going to get into that, but you have it because you are in a family. You have been adopted into a family, if you have. It's not automatic. It is free, but it is not automatic. And so the scripture I read was Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that through the gospel of the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers. You get to share with together in the promise, but it has to be, as Scripture says, in Christ Jesus. So we're going to jump off today in Galatians 3.18, and I'm going to do something I don't do very often. Most of my sermons are topical in nature, but I'm going to do something I learned how to do in Bible school, so if I'm a little rusty, you guys bear with me, have some patience. I'm going to exegete. Anybody know what exegete means? <laughs> so I'm going to pull from Scripture. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture. I'm going to get through some of it pretty fast. But there's a story in Galatians 3.18 that, that really, really matters as we build into what, in, what our inheritance is, how we walk in it, how we receive the inheritance, how we become God's inheritance in the earth. And so Galatians 3.18 is this really fascinating Scripture, and this is what it says. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. So that's a contrast. But God in His grace unmerited favor, you, favor that God gives you that you did not deserve, remember the inheritance definition, that God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So, so I want to create the context of this. If the inheritance depends on the law, so he said if, if, the, if, if, it, if the inheritance depends on what you do and how well you obey the law, not just the 10 commandments, but the 613 commandments, right? There's way more. And remember, James, we talked about last week, last week if you fail in one aspect of the law, You've failed the entire law. You ha it's an all or nothing scenario, right? And it's important to remember because we're going to see that Jesus paid the whole thing. He didn't falter in one place. He paid it all, and that's why he, he was qualified to do that. But again, your if your inheritance depends on the law, it doesn't depend on a promise. But flip that around and understand this. If it depends on the promise, then it doesn't depend on the law. And I want to go after that a little bit, but I want to show you a little bit in, in the context, so we're going to back up and jump into Galatians 3.15 and kind of follow this story a little bit. So he says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. So he's talking about inheritance and the covenant. He says, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant. In other words, you can't, you, you can't sometimes my nephews, our nephews are here with, me, with us this morning. I don't know if you saw them. We're so excited about that. Um, my, my oldest nephew uh, was in VBS a couple of weeks ago and gave his life to Jesus, and it's one of the most exciting things in my life. Isn't that fun? Yeah. And so uh, what's really interesting, I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but, but my little guy, uh, they're 10 and 6, and the little guy over here, he was... Uh, uh, he raised his hand when we asked for healing, and he's had some stomach problems this week, and so I thought that's what it was going to be, and I, I went to pray for him, Karen, and I went to pray for him. He said, I said, hey, what do you want us to pray for you? And he said, uh, can you pray for Kevin? And that's his stepdad who was in an accident a month or so ago and broke his hip. He said, can we pray for him? I was like, oh, man, come on, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I also prayed for his stomach, by the way, because I'm not a terrible uncle. But I just, you know, this, this whole thing about inheritance has a, has a very specific thing for me, especially seeing my nephews here and all that. Anyway, so um, let's just jump into it. So brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. So here's, here's why I brought that up. My, my youngest nephew, sometimes when we play cards, 
he starts losing, and I don't know if you like to do, he's very competitive, and so he changes the rules. And have you ever noticed that? And his older brother does not like that at all. Uh, I don't like it either. But the whole point is, is you, everybody knows you don't get to do that, right? If you change the rules in the middle of the game, if you break a contract, everybody's like, you can't, you just don't get to do that. So it goes on, it says, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham. So, so again, the promises are very specific. He's talking about something very specific we're going to get to in a second. But the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And, and then he kind of puts this in parentheses. He says, Scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So what he's saying is there was a promise made to Abraham and his seed. And so we're going to go back in just a second and look at that story. But when, when the promise was made to Abraham, God said, I'm going to make you a great, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you a family. One of his promises is I'm going to give you a son. And we know the kind of story where he kind of makes, he missed that in a big way. But he says, I'm going to give you a son, even into his old age. Um, he tried to do it his own way. Isn't that what we always try to do? We try to a- a- accumulate the promises of God in our own fashion, in our own design. And, uh, and it just never works out for us. But he goes on, he says, this is, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus was the promised seed. So Abraham, in his lineage, if you follow it through, Jesus is a son of Abraham, right? He's an Israelite. Uh, Israel was, was one of uh, Abraham's sons, and then Israel became a nation, and then Jesus was part of that, and then there was a covenant made with, with David as well, and then Jesus was, uh, was a, of the lineage of David. So you see this picture, he's saying, I gave Abraham a promise and there's going to be this big, big, long story that you follow out through, starting in Genesis 12, going through the entire book of Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 11 is this picture of God and the whole world and how he's relating it to it through Adam and Eve, the first representative humans, and how they were supposed to choose one way. They chose another way, and it went downhill from there. And then he picks a man named Abraham from this lineage, and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. In other words, I'm going to bring redemption to all of humanity through you and your family. Isn't that interesting? And how, how we can take that now and say, God is going to bring redemption to your family through you and your seed. Isn't that amazing how it just becomes personal? So he's talking about Jesus being the seed. And he goes on in verse 17. He says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So he's made this relation to a human covenant, right? He says, you don't get to change the rules. You don't get to change the promises. You don't get to change anything in the contract. If you do, there's a penalty to pay. So he says, so God comes and he says, I'm going to promise something. I'm going to give something to Abraham through a promise. And then 430 years later, the law was given on Mount Sinai through Moses, right? Remember the story? It's actually, the Bible says, through the angels, and Moses was the mediator. He, the children of Israel were supposed to go up on the mountain in the middle of Exodus. They did not do that. They'd come out of Israel. We talked about that during worship. And so they were going to go up on this mountain in God's presence, who they'd lost in the garden and lost. They, they were trying to build something in Babylon, remember the story, to, to reach the presence of God in their own form, in their own fashion, in their own way. And God said, that's not good. So, so that was done away with. He confused their languages. And from that lineage, one tribe, you see Abraham. And so God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to do this through you and your family. So he starts that process. And so he's talking about there's a big picture here. Right? So 430 years is a pretty big gap, right? So Abraham and then his sons and sons and sons, and eventually it becomes the nation of Israel. And then the king of Israel, David, he makes another covenant through him. And all of this is leading somewhere. So he's saying something happened in that promise that 430 years later, when the law came, which we're all familiar with, 
did not annul that promise. Super important that we understand this, and we're going to get to why in just a second. So he talks about this. Augustine, St. Augustine wrote in in his book, Ancient Christian Commentary, one of the early church fathers. He said, if the law justifies, Abraham wasn't justified. (laughs) That's just as hardcore as it gets. Since he lived long before the law. So in other words, he said, God comes and says, I've justified you. I made a promise to you. And, and he goes on to say, if you believe my promise, I'm going to account that to you as righteousness. Not something you did, but something you believed. I made a promise, which is exactly what God did in the beginning with Adam and Eve. He made a promise to them. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your understanding. Let me determine good and evil. If you do that, you eat the tree of life. And I have decided what's good and evil, Right? on my terms. Or you can eat from this other tree and the enemy comes and whispers in their ear and says, you really, you know, God's holding some things back. You can't trust him. You can't believe him, right? You have to do it in your own strength. And so the story of the Bible is that story over and over and over and over again, going down and down and down until you see all the brokenness. And then God comes and makes a new promise through these other covenants. And he's building up to eventually getting to what we call the new covenant. Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. And Jesus, we think the New Testament or the New Covenant begins when Jesus is born at Christmas. It does not. (laughs) It begins, because the Bible talks about a testament, it's like a will, like a promise, like a contract. It's It's not validated until the person dies, right? So Jesus dies on the cross, and when he does that, everything that he had promised us in his will, in his testament, now becomes available to you. We talked about last week in defining that, that just because it's available doesn't mean you're going to take it. You can not know about it. You can say, I I decide I don't want it, and it's going to go to someone else. That inheritance goes to someone else. But you can refuse it, even though it belongs to you. As we brought that out and talked about when a a son is young and immature, uh, the, the the, the Greek word is he's a minor. He's not reached adulthood. He's not taken, you know, full responsibility. That that when he is a son, even though he's a son and owns the entire estate, He's still like a slave because he's not gotten to the point where he he is receiving and walking in the fullness of the inheritance that has been made available to him. So immaturity can keep you from walking into the fullness of of the inheritance. So uh, verse 18, now we're back at this scripture. Let me read it again. For if the inheritance depends on the law. So see how he set this up with the story of the whole story, right? Because Paul's talking to the Galatians and he starts out and he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, and we're going to get to this next week, talking about the Spirit of God as an inheritance. He said, having begun in the Spirit, are you going to now try to make this this all work in the flesh, in your own strength, like Adam did, like uh, Noah did, like Abraham did, like David did, like you did? (laughs) Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to trust in the promise? So he says, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace, unmerited favor, Gave it to Abraham through a promise. So here's the thing. That is a big if. And this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, you're, Galatians, you're, you're going to have to make this decision. You've heard me preach this gospel. You've seen signs and wonders. You have seen Jesus in front of you. You've watched our manner of living. You've seen how we live. You know that it's not like you don't have evidence that this is true. But you still have to make, have to make a decision. Are you going to live your life through the Spirit through God's way of working through you in the earth, or are you going to try to accomplish things on your own? Now, here's where David, as, a, as I mean, sorry, as Abraham as a picture becomes really, really powerful because God comes and he gives him this promise, I'm going to give you a son, right? 
And so time begins to go by. Circumstances begin to look like God is not going to be true to his promise, right? So Abraham's wife comes along and says, hey, I'm getting old, you're getting old. Let's help God because God needs all the help he can get, right? We all know that. So <laughs> let's help God. Here, sleep with my slave girl, right? And Abraham was like, I'm okay with that, right? <laughs> Which is bad, but he did it. He shouldn't have, right? He should have stuck to his guns, just like Adam should have stuck to his guns with his wife, and he didn't. So he caved and indulged his wife. And so we're like, we can blame it on Eve. We can blame it on, on Sarah. But let's be honest. Those men had some personal responsibility involved. Can I ask the men say amen to that? Okay, thank you. So it moves on, right? So here's the promise. She says, hey, do this. This will help. A baby is born. And then it goes through this whole story. And he talks about this in just previous chapters. Go back and read it. And the context is powerful. He said, listen, there is a son of promise that's coming. And then you went and tried to do something that wasn't the son of promise. You didn't believe me when I said I was going to be good to you, that I was promised you something and I was going to do it. You didn't believe it. You didn't believe that I had an inheritance for you. But you, and, and you had to submit to my way of doing it. You would not trust me. You did it on your own. And now look at what you got. Now you've got sons fighting sons. It's moved into literally wars. Whole wars of people groups have been fought between the son of promise and, and the son of the flesh, right? And it's continuing even now. But it con it's even in our lives. We can say, well, that's their problem. You know, they should have done better. But we see that in our own lives. There's the wars, and James talks about this. I'm going to mention it in a second. The wars that happen among us because we fight, because we want, because we're trying to get something from God in our own strength and our own way. And he said the, the problem is when you ask, first of all, you're not even asking God. You're trying to do it on your own. And secondly, when you ask, you do it because you want to spend it on your own pleasure. In other words, you are selfish, you're thinking about you and you alone, which is why I was so excited when my little nephew said, hey, can we pray for somebody else? For a six-year-old little boy, that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal for me. But that, it's that beauty of, hey, I have to think outside myself and give away to it. So beautiful, beautiful scripture. So here's the promise. I'm going to go back through it real quick. Here's the promise. So God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you uh, um, the, the father of nations, not just a nation, but nations. I'm going to give you a name. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna give you victory over your enemies. I'm gonna do all this stuff, and I'm gonna do it through a promise. So, so the way covenants were made in that time is you, you would have vassal kings. You, had, you would have uh, superior rulers um, who had strength and armies, and they would come in, and they would take over smaller armies and smaller people groups, and the lesser would submit to the, to the greater. And so the greater would come in and he would say, hey, I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will fight for you if other enemies come in. But you must be loyal to me. You must honor me and you must serve me. So we're going to make a covenant. And the covenant is a contract. And the way they would do it is they would split animals down the middle. And they would fold them apart, two parts of the covenant, right? And there would be a trench that was dug in the middle where the blood would come into. And they would both walk through that covenant, walk through that that split those split bodies. It's gross and disgusting. I get it. But the plan was, and the understanding was, if you break this covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to you. So it was a big reminder of do not screw this up, right? Don't mess up this covenant. So here's the thing. Go back and read it. Genesis chapter 12. I got so much scripture, I'm not going to throw any more at you from this. But just suffice it to say, 
God comes and he says, Abraham, go get the animals, cut them in two. So he, he, pre- he prepares the covenant. He understands what's going on. He's seen this happen before. He's ready to do his part in that covenant because uh, the greater is about to bless the lesser and he's super excited about it. So he gets ready to do that. And then the Bible says this really interesting thing. It says God brought a deep sleep over Abraham. And when Abraham went into this deep sleep, he saw God represented through a torch. And and anyway, so the picture of God moving through the covenant, moving, walking through the blood, saying, I'm going to do this. And Abraham was powerless to do anything to, to be part of the covenant. So God basically said, here's the covenant. I'm going to do it all. I want you to watch me. I want you to hear me promise to you what I'm going to promise you. And I'm asking you only one thing. You don't have to do anything physically. You don't, have to, you, don't have to, you don't have to do anything. You just have to believe me. Will you believe that what I'm saying is true? That's all he's asking. And so God says, I'm going to give you all these promises, and the only thing you have to do is believe me. <laughs> and it's like, that doesn't seem right, does it? Right? So, of course, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to do that. And so he goes into it, and he creates, God creates a unilateral agreement. God is the one who set the, he set the terms. He did all the work. He's done everything. And all Abraham is is a beneficiary to the promise. He's a beneficiary. He becomes the one who receives the inheritance, having done nothing to receive it. So a big, big, big picture. And so now we're going to jump into Galatians 3.19 with that understanding. So Galatians 3.19 now asks the question. Remember, this happened. The promise comes to Abraham. If you know Abraham's story, he screws it up royally, right? Uh, Two times, he offers his wife to another king, right? And basically says, she's my sister, I'm backing out. And God, in his kindness, gives dreams to those other kings and says, you you probably don't want to sleep with this woman, right? I will kill everything that you touch if you sleep with this woman. So they're like, you can have her back, right? And so two times he literally gave away his wife. I mean, it's horrible. We talk about Abraham, you know, he did it right. No, he did not do it right at all. He did some things right, but he did a bunch of things wrong. And that's the picture. We tend to paint the story of Abraham, such a great man of faith. True, but he's also a terrible failure, and you watch his family. They did the same thing that Israel did. As, that, as they got older, you know, Jacob and, and, and his, I mean, he fights against his brother. He's a deceiver. And then the, the 12 sons, they give up Joseph, throw him in. They're going to kill him, and they throw him in the pit and sell him into slavery. And then this whole story of Joseph going to Israel, it's just this massive picture of like, uh, you know, it's like the, uh, the real housewives of, of Israel or something. You know what I mean? It's just like so much drama that you're re- if you don't understand the big picture context, you're like, what is go- this is just failure after failure after failure, which, by the way, is an indication that the Bible is true. You know why? Because other religious books don't do that. They don't paint their God in, in a bad picture. They have to, they have to hold him up because he's not real. So we have to make him amazing, right? But, but, and that's fine. You can do that. But they also make you know, the prophets amazing. They make the people in the Bible like these guys, look at them, they're amazing, because they had to work to get God bless them, so they have to paint a picture that their work actually got it done. Therefore, your work can get it done. The problem with that is if you know anything about world religions and their leaders, they were not good people, right? So the Bible just says, here it is, here's, here's ugly, in all of its ugliness, right? And it paints this picture. So Galatians 3.19 now says, well, what was the law for then? 
So it goes, why then was the law given at all? So now they're trying, to, they're trying to obey the promises of the law to get the promise that God, obey the, the, sorry, the, obey the covenant of the law to get the promises that God gave them. So God comes now on Mount Sinai and he says, I'm going to give you some commandments. You, you want to do it yourself, I'm going to show you that you can't. That, that was the whole picture of the law. You, you've been, all this time, you're like, watch us, God, we'll do it. So, that, so God gives the law on the, old, on, on the mountain. Moses becomes the mediator between God and the people. He brings it down. He presents it to the people. Uh, they're standing on both sides of the mountain. There are millions of people who hear this. He declares all the law, and this is what the people in unison said. We will do everything that's required of us. Think of the arrogance that it took to say that on that day. So God's saying, I would love for you to come up and be with me. They were afraid. They said, no, Moses, you go. Somebody else represented us. Represent us. We know how evil and broken we are. We're not going up there. <laughs> so Moses does. He comes back, presents the law. So now they're in a covenant that says, if you do this, then I will do this. Right? Why? Why did they do that? He's about to answer this question. So why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until something happened. So the law says, the law is temporary. God, it's a covenant that God says, I'm going to give this, this covenant to you because all the, the, the covenant that I gave to Abraham, you won't, you won't believe me. You won't, you won't abide by the covenant I gave to Abraham, which was really simple. It's not hard, right? I'll be good. I'm going to promise you a bunch of stuff, and you just have to take me at my word. But the people were like, no, no, no. We need to, we'll do our part. So in their pride and their arrogance, God says, fine, let's see if you can do that. So he gives them the law. 400 and something years later, he gives the law. It goes on. says it was added because of your transgressions. Not that they weren't sinning before. They just weren't acknowledging that they were. Right? Remember who Jesus was most angry at in the New Testament? Anybody know? Religious people. Why? He said to them, he said, I, I, I don't like what you're doing because you will go halfway around the world to make a person a convert of your religion and then make them twice the son of hell that you are. He said that to preachers, right? The religious leaders. So the issue was never, they, had, they didn't have transgressions. They weren't willing to admit it. They would stand on the corner and he said, on the outside you look perfect, right? You can, you can look good, you can look religious, you can look like you're obeying the commands, but he said, inside you're full of dead men's bones, you're full of death and decay and all evil things. That's what the Bible says, from this heart comes every wicked thing, right? Devises, it says, I can, I can get something for my life. I can get money, I can get fame, I can get prestige, I can get a promise that God, I somehow know inside of me that I'm supposed to have these things, but rather than waiting on God and letting him give it to me, I go after it myself and I'm going, I'm going to tweak it, I'm going to you know, offer up my slave, you know, slave girl to my husband or whatever crazy kind of thing that we're going to do. We're doing so many things to go, I can do this myself. And so the law says, okay, let's give that a try and see how it works out for you, right? So he goes on, he says, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. That was obviously, that was Moses, right? He says, a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So let me just pause right here with that scripture. Um, one commentary I read about this scripture says, this is one of the most obscure scriptures in the Bible. In other words, the first time you read this, you're like, what? A mediator, however, implies more than one party. Remember, there's two parties in, in the mediation, and then a mediator is the person who's working between the two, right? He's going to settle things between the two. So he says, a mediator, however, implies more than one party. And then he says, but God is one. 
So what do you think he's getting at? He's like, listen, so here's the law. The law is two parties. Moses was the mediator, right? Here, that's the covenant. You do this, and I'll do this, and the priests are mediators between God and the people, right? Moses was, and then Aaron, and then his sons, and the priesthood. And so now there's a physical priesthood that's mediating between the two. But God says, but that's not how I do it. I am one. I don't need anybody to mediate for me. The problem is you won't let me just be in relationship with you. Remember what the, the Israelites said? We're not going up there on that mountain. <laughs> right? So think about Adam and Eve. Adam means humanity in Hebrew. Eve means life. So here's the representatives of all of humanity and the ability to bring life and, and the inheritance that comes from it that God's given them for free, right? And they're, they're, they're presented with one single option in, in the garden. Eat of this tree um, that, that trusts I'm going to do good and evil. Do you have to trust me that I know what I'm doing and I've created you and all these good things? But over here, if you say no to that, you get to determine your own version of this. And that's what got us in trouble and has gotten us in trouble every single time. Because think about even now, we have judges, we call them activist judges. So judges in our, in our culture, in America, are supposed to not make the laws. That's the legislature's job, right? Checks and balances. All they're supposed to do is interpret it based on the Constitution. And so often they're like, well, we're going to make the law say this so that we can be unjust, right? And make money and fame and power and all that stuff. And we look at that and go, all kinds of evil. And that's what was going on here. Galatians 3.21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Part of this you're going to see Paul go after this numerous times. Is the law bad? Right? It, God gave a covenant. Did he screw it up? It was like, should he have not given the law? Was that a mistake? Is the law there, uh, sorry, uh, um, here it is. Uh, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. He's saying, if this law could impart life, it would have. But it was not designed to do that. So understand this. You trying to obey the law as a Christian will not bring you life. It will only bring you death. But we try it all the time. God, I will. God, I'll do better. God, I'll, I'm, We sin. Here's the biggest picture, the practical. I'll sin and go, whoa. Man, I know that's not right. Because our heart has been changed as believers, right? We've been given a new nature and a new heart. And when we sin, it grieves us. Even though we're like, we got these patterns in our head and in, in the flesh and in the world and temptation that's driving us. And sometimes we say yes to those things because it's promising something like that deceiving voice in the, in the Garden of Eden, right? That deceiving voice says, did God really say, is he really good? Is he really going to offer this to you? Here's a shortcut, take it. What about pleasure, Right? It's all about your pleasure. It's all about getting what you, it's all about you being happy. The world just tells you all the time, you just be happy. That's the most important thing. It's not true at all. We know that if we live any, any amount of life. He goes and he says, here's what happens though. Absolutely not for if the law had been given, it would impart life. It, it would, but it didn't. So it was never designed for that. Then he says in verse 22, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. It's a, it's a picture. He's painting a picture about being in prison. And he goes on. He says, so, so, what was promised being given through faith, in other words, believing in Jesus and what he did on the cross, might be given to, what, to who? To those who believe. So God's saying, I'm about to make you some promises in Christ, in this new covenant, just like I made Abraham a promise. The question is, will you believe it? Or will you keep, you keep trying to please me by doing it your own way? No, God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to try to live a righteous life. I want to try to show how strong I am. I want to prove how good I am. Galatians 3.23. 
Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So he paints this picture and he says the law was like a prison. So in prison, prisoners are free, right? Sort of, <laughs> right? How many criminals are, cre- are, are, are robbing banks in prison? Probably not many. But is it because they don't want to rob banks or just because they don't have access, right? So how many of you guys, when you, I'm, about to, I'm about to expose you. How many of you guys, when you're driving your car, you're, you're zooming pretty fast and, and the popo, you got, drive by the popo or the popo pops up behind you, right? And you're like, all of a sudden you hit the brake and you're like, oh, I can't hit the brake because then they'll know. And so like you go into this whole deceitful thing or like I got to slow, everyone you're smiling because everyone you do, I don't do that. I'm a Christian, but the rest of you guys, that's why I'm, that's why I'm pre- preaching to you. But why, why do we do that? Because something inside of us says, oh, that there's, there are consequences for this, right? For breaking the law. And that's true. That's that covenant thing, right? So we all know it. So the picture he paints is, if you're in prison, there's a freedom that comes in the law, but you're not really free. You're bound up in the law. It feels free because it's controlling. Remember the Bible says, it is for freedom God set you free. There's this beautiful picture of how do you live as a Christian without obeying, do you obey the Ten Commandments? The answer is you do, but not because you're trying to. <laughs> you obey, you live according to God's law because the, the one who perfected that and did it for you lives inside your heart and you grow up as a baby and you all, all of a sudden, before you had a new heart, you didn't have the ability to do the right thing, but now because you've been given a, a right heart, your heart is to do good. Your heart is to love God and to love people. It is to do that. There are some patterns and old ways of thinking that somehow get in the way of that sometimes. There are temptations that take you off course. But why is it that you regret it when you do something wrong? Not because the law is holding over you, because something inside you grieves and says, I was not made for sin. I was made for something so much more, right? So he goes on, 3, 24, and 25. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So he said, the promise with Abraham, 400 and something years, the law, to show you, you you are absolutely convinced that you can do this in in your own strength. So I'm going to show you you can't. So he puts us underneath this guardian. The law was both a prison and a guardian. The picture I've shared this many times about the the picture of a child in in that day was held under a guardian until eventually it was released to his father. So it did all the rudimentary things, homeschooling, all that stuff, teaching, get them ready. They turned 13 in the Israeli understanding of this, and and they would become a man or become a woman. The the young girl would go and work with her mother, and the the young man would become an apprentice to his father in what he was doing. And the expectation is that the guardian would hold you there. He would keep you in that place until you were ready to walk into your inheritance. And that's the picture he's painting right here. And the whole whole idea behind it, again, is we just couldn't do right. So verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So he painted the picture, you're underneath the guardian, and he, and he, he goes on in a, in a few verses later on, I mentioned it earlier, and he says, as long as you were a minor... You are no different than a slave. So he's saying, you're, you're, if you're under the law, you're held in a guardianship. And you don't get to walk in your inheritance as long as you stay under the law. Because the law was designed to show you you couldn't receive the inheritance in your own strength. You could not work hard enough to get an inheritance. You would always screw it up. And that's the picture that God's painting. He's saying, now I'm going to remind you that when Jesus comes, the promise that was made to Abraham is still valid. The law did not usurp that. It's still valid. So it goes on, finishes up. 
He says, um, Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Baptism doesn't save you. I, what I do when I baptize people is I hold them under till the bubble slow down. That way I know you met Jesus at least. I don't know if you're serving him, right? But you met him. And so all, that water is not magic. It doesn't do anything for you. It's a picture, a symbol of Jesus going down into the grave, right? Paying for our penalty for sin, and then coming up alive, and, and because G, God raised him the dead, the Bible says, he has now, um, he's, he's now declared to the whole world, the penalty for sin has been paid because I raised him from the dead, right? It's been paid. And when you get baptized, it says two things happen. You, you submit yourself to God's plan and program. You say to the whole world, I'm a believer, and I want the whole world to know. Even if that means they exclude me or they think I'm weird, I don't care. I want the whole world to know that I identify with this God and this rabbi, right, Jesus. And then the second thing it says, listen to it, it says, you've been baptized into Christ. If you've been baptized, you've also been clothed. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. So you are now in Christ, and all of the inheritance that is due Christ because you are in him is now yours. But if you're still immature, you're not going to walk in it. Verse 28. This is interesting. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor there's male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all the backbiting, all the competition, all the stuff that happens. You know, I'm the pastor of the church, so don't try to usurp me. Don't try to do, I'm in charge here, right? All that foolishness goes away. And we all say, any authority that I've been given as an elder in this church is to build you up never to tear you down. That's what Paul told the church when he said, I've been given authority as, as an apostle and as an elder and as a founder of this work, as a father in Christ, but it is never to tear you down. It's only to build you up. Any authority I've been, and that's what's saying, in Jesus, all that competition, all that foolishness just goes away, right? Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and listen, and you are heirs, How? according to the promise, right? So God is asking us to believe something. So again, God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you many offspring. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to bless the nations through your family, through you and your family, and I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. And because Jesus comes along and fulfills this covenant perfectly, this is what happens. He fulfills the law. He shows us that only God could do this. So, so Jesus is not just a man. He has God become man, right? And so he goes through this. In Jesus, the Father did all the work necessary for us to receive this inheritance. He defeated the enemy. He initiated the renewal of all things and commissioned his church to declare this good news, that the promise is there. What is it? That your sins are no longer held against you. That all of the things that, said, that you would say or anybody else would say disqualifies me from receiving an inheritance, no matter what you have done, that matters zero in Christ. So Jew, Greek, that was an argument with the Galatians and the Jews. They were always arguing about that. You see, the first deacons came because the Greeks and the Jews were having a competition about who, whose widows are going to get the money or not. And they challenged that and said, you can't do that in Jesus. So we put mature believers in here to fix your immaturity, right? Think about that. And he says, we're going to take all your sin away. Anything that's in the way of you walking in this promise is going to go away. So let me finish with this. A series, I've, I've, I've preached this a million times in a diff million different ways. And we're going to keep going until we all get it, right? Until we're walking in the fullness. This is 2 Corinthians 5.18. 
All this is from God. So Paul's talking about all these promises. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ, so this is how it happens, this is how you get the inheritance. He did something. God, through Christ, did something. This is what happened on the cross. He reconciled us to himself. So just like Abraham, right, in the covenant, he, the covenant is made, everything is, here's what's going to have to happen, right? So the covenant with Abraham, he puts him into a deep sleep, right? So that Abraham doesn't even participate in the covenant. So now the law comes along, shows you you couldn't do anything anyway, right? Because God showed, he showed a picture to Abraham. This is not about you and what you can do. This is about me, what I'm going to do. So now this covenant, he says, um, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. To, he reconciled us to himself. We had nothing to do with it. Nothing. There's not one single thing that you or I can do to make God love you. You know why? Because he already loves you. You can't make him not love you. You can't. You cannot do it. Can you screw your life up and, and damage people around you? Absolutely you can, and some of us have gotten good at it, right? <laughs> we need to quit that foolishness. But what drives us to this is not you better shine up. It's God has shined up for you, and he said the offer still stands if you will quit striving in your own strength. Quit trying to get me to do things in your life. Quit praying, God, give me a better house. God, give me a better job. God, if I could only get married. God, if I, and you go down this list and say, God, I'm the center of the universe. Will you please do everything I'm, I'm asking you to do? And God's simply saying, will you just at some point acknowledge that you are not the center of the universe, but you are the center of mine? So the world doesn't, it doesn't revolve around you. God has a purpose and a plan. And he made you to be a part of this, because watch what happens. He says, I have an inheritance in you. You are my inheritance. I long for you to be the fullness of my own, to be in my presence. The whole point when God made humanity was not that he needed somebody to talk to. He had himself, the Trinity. He was living in perfect community. Adding Adam and Eve did not help community. It only created the potential for problems. But his heart was to love us in such a way to say, I'm going to go through this whole process before the foundation of time. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pour my life out for you, and I'm going to redeem you from all the things that you're going to do wrong, and I'm going to show you that nothing you ever could have done was going to keep me from loving you. And when you understand that, when you really get that, it humbles you to the core. And you stop striving, you stop fighting, and you finally submit and go, it's, it's exactly what what uh, Peter and the disciples did when everybody's leaving Jesus and they come to him, and Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? And I love his words. He's like, where else are we going to go? You are the only one. Every other avenue leaves, leaves, leads to destruction. You are the only one where we have found life. You're, the, you're it. And so they stayed with him, and Jesus again released it. But again, it wasn't on their terms. And if you can try to come to God on your own terms, all you want and all you will ever get is the law. You want to come on your terms? Here are the terms. Good luck with that. And the law will drive you to humility. Or if you're good at the outward appearance, you will be evil incarnate on the inside and you'll look really good on the outside and you will use people for your own means. You'll use God for your own means. So he finishes up. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then listen to what happened. 
And then he gave us a ministry. He reconciled us and then gave us something to do with that reconciliation. So see the order? He's not saying, hey, go do this for me, and then I'll, we'll count it good for you. But nope, the promise is here. It's available to you. So I'm going to do the promise. If you never do anything else, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to bless you, even in your stupidity. And all of us can say we've, we've experienced that. But he said, he re- reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and this is what that is. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, They weren't trying. He did it for them. And he was not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We get to tell the story about who God really is and how he wants to relate to people. We don't need people to do the right thing. And can I just tell you, that's not easy. I I want people to do the right thing. When I feel, when someone does injustice to me, I'm angry and I want to fix it. I want to hurt them is what I usually want to do, right? And then I remember how much injustice I have done to God and how the one perfect being could have taken out justice on me and he never did. And it humbles me and it reminds me that this person is broken and part of their brokenness is they don't know potentially who God is and how he, how he makes this work. So let me end with this last scripture. It's a simple one. It's James chapter 4, but let me just set it up with this. There's a psalm that says, and we all heard it, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, right? And then this is what happens. We hear that part of it. This is what happens right after that. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Why? Because every time we start into this, if we're not careful, what happens is the circumstances in our life begin to tell us a different story about God. The enemy whispers through circumstances in our life saying, is God really good? Did he really make this promise? Did he really take your sin away? Or is there something you need to do? And so with that in mind, he says, I would have despaired if I didn't believe that God would do something in this world. It's not just heaven waiting for me. It's God, his his release of inheritance is in you here. So I get the benefit of being born with all the inheritance of the great God and the great king. But it's not just for me to spend on my own pleasure. It's for me to use to bless my brothers and sisters and those who have gone out who are part of the family that are lost and undone like that first um, prodigal son that the older son should have gone after. So here's James 4, 1, 3, and then I'm going to pray for us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's talking to believers. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, not being submitted to God's plan for your life, your desires and your battle. You desire, but you don't have. You're coveting, you want things. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. In other words, just like Jacob and just like his sons and and Abraham's sons, they quarrel and they fight amongst themselves to get something that God has already promised to them. But it has to come on God's terms, not on theirs. And this is how he ends this. He says, You do not have because you do not ask God. In other words, you are fighting this battle, trying to get everything God promised you, and he's not even in the picture. Have you ever found yourself go a whole week striving for something and not prayed and not talked to God, not ask him what's going on? I've done that. And then he finishes with this. He says, even when you ask, you do not receive. Why? 
because you ask with wrong motives, something in your heart, striving against it. He says that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And so here's ultimately the the big picture. It's just a statement. Only an immature son would try to spend all of his inheritance on himself. So God has given you an inheritance, a promise. The whole picture of the story of the Bible is this promise is yours, and it culminated 2,000 years ago in Christ Jesus. And here's what it, it comes down to. Galatians, he goes on and finishes out, and he says this. As long as you're an immature son, you may as well be a slave. That's what it's saying. And what slavery, where slavery comes, to, comes from is sin, and sin is, 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 the picture of sin is the law. You've broken the law, and the moment you say, okay, the, let the law do its work and show me that I'm broken and busted. Why? Because then I can back up and go, I absolutely 100% do not deserve this inheritance or this promise, and yet God has given it to me anyway. So the, the son comes back to the father in his head. Think about this, because this is what we do. In his head, he came back and he said, I will be like one of my father's hired servants. That I've lost my place because I've disobeyed God and I've, I've taken myself away from the inheritance. I blew the inheritance I already had. I've wasted it. And now the best I can hope for is to come back with a slave mentality, a servant mentality. And what does the father do in the story? He comes out to the son. He doesn't wait for the son to come and even apologize. He's quick. As soon as the son comes in, he says, Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I've sinned. I've blown it. You know, the best I can hope for. And the father stops him and said, what are you talking about? You are my son. <laughs> he says, now come here. We're going to have a big party, and I'm put this robe on you. I'm, I'm going to restore everything that was always yours in the first place. You went out searching for something that was right here at the house the whole time. And here's the kicker. Jesus is telling the story about broken people who are willing to admit they're broken, but come back with a servant mentality. And then he paints another picture with the older son because the Pharisees and the religious people who outwardly were performing all the things to get God to do what they want, they're trying to manipulate God and people. He said to that older son when he comes back, the older son says, that son of yours, not my brother, that son of yours, Think about this. He said, I can't believe this. You throw a party. You, you never one time gave me the fatted calf. And what did the father say? It's always been available. But you've been so busy working for me, you didn't even know me. We could have been partying the whole time. But you're so full of yourself. Now I'm ad-libbing. Jesus didn't say that. You're so full of yourself that not only have you missed your own inheritance, You're unwilling to take the inheritance that I have given you and to go after that son, that broken brother who needs your help and who needed you to come and rescue him and bring him home. Now, why did he tell that story? A bunch of reasons, but here's the primary one based on our inheritance. The the oldest son was always given at least double the inheritance. Why? Because his job now, as he took the place of the father, that he walked in the fullness of inheritance, was to take that inheritance and use it to spend on reconciliation to all of the family. He became the patriarch. And so here's the beautiful thing God's doing in you. The promise is, you don't have to do one single thing to deserve this. The inheritance is yours, and as a matter of fact, you've already blown a bunch of it, and you come back with the mindset, man, Lord, if you knew what I'd done, and the Lord's like, I was totally there the whole time, and I do know what you did. And I never stopped loving you, even when you were being a knothead, right? But when you come back, will you please not come back with a servant mentality? 
And that's hard. But let me tell you why it's so important. Because if you come back with a servant mentality in that realm, you know what you're saying? You want to do it on your own terms. You want to come based on the law. I will do better, Father. No, you won't. No, you won't. You know why? Because the reason you're screwing up is you're trying to follow something. You're trying to get something from God that he's already given you. And if you stop striving and receive the promise of God, the heart is changed, and now you live out those beautiful laws, right, that are so true about God, not because you're trying to, but because you have a new heart, and there is a new desire in you, and there's a new longing for holiness and perfection and right and good and all those things, but it's not to try to earn something from God. It's to recognize that that is part of the inheritance that God has now put in you so that you can use to bless others. So this morning... How are you receiving the inheritance? On your own terms? Or will you just receive the promise that Jesus says, I've done it. All you have to do is humble yourself, submit yourself to my way of doing things, learn of me. Remember what Jesus said? Learn of me, humble yourself, learn of me. I will show you a way where you're not working so hard. Come walk with me, this new rhythm of grace, all those beautiful pictures. Are you going to do it on your own terms? Or are you going to come on his? Because here's the thing, when you finally submit, all the pain and heartache that that striving has been bringing you to try to get something for your own pleasure goes away and you begin to serve with this renewed promise of what God is doing, how he's doing it through you, and you become the blessing to the nations that God meant for you to be. He took this obscure man named Abraham and made him the father of nations. Why? Because Abraham was not perfect. Go read the stories. But he believed that God was telling the truth when he said he was going to bless him. He believed that God was who he said he was. Will you do that? Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, we love you. We can't say thank you enough, Lord, for what you've done. Um, our inheritance, you are that older brother that came, Lord, and searched us out. Use your inheritance, Lord, to come and search us out and pay the price that was necessary to bring redemption and reconciliation to us as younger brothers to the Father. So Jesus, thank you for that. Now, Lord, I pray that we would grow up and become the older brother that you represented, not the one in the story, but the one that you represented. And recognize, Lord, that the inheritance that we are, what we've been given through this promise you've given us because of what you did on the cross, Lord, is now ours to enjoy, yes. But Lord, it's not to spend just on our own pleasure. We have been called to a ministry to reconcile others, to tell this story to other people and bring them into right relationship with you. Not as servants, God, but as sons. Lord, help us to win our younger brothers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you guys. If you need prayer, we have our team up here. We'd love to pray for you. If you're online, just uh, connect with us. We'd love to pray for you as well. Otherwise, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.